Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome back to our podcast and hello to my fabulous co-host, Wendy Christie. Wendy, how's your week going? Really well, thank you. A a very exciting highlight to my week as we've ordered our very first garden shed. Oh, exciting. (laughs) I know, right. I'm very sad that that's my highlight, but nevertheless... How's things with you? Well, I had a, a birthday weekend last weekend, so there was a lot of food involved, including a cheese barge. Wow. Which is basically a barge in Paddington where they just serve cheese and wine, and it was delightful. I'm, I'm kind of getting used to this whole restaurants being open again, and yeah, that was that was amazing. So not a barge made of it's cheese. not a barge made of cheese. That would have been fun too. But... <laughs> so we are also joined today by Tony Wood, who is former Chief Marketing and Commercial Officer for DFS and now the Chief Marketing Officer of youfurnish.com, the furniture comparison website, which is in rapid growth stage. And welcome, Tony. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Tony, do you want to tell us a little bit more about youfurnish.com and and what attracted you to work with uh, what's a kind of a relative newcomer in terms of brands? Yeah, for sure. So so we are a website that's about discovery and comparison. So if you think about booking.com and Skyscanner, that's kind of what we do, but we do it for the furniture industry. So we're the only people that do it. It's a 25.5 billion pound industry um, and no one's actually aggregating it. And it's actually quite a fragmented market and quite a huge consumer opportunity. So uh, I'm super excited about being part of that. Um, We are 12 months old next month. So very exciting. And we, as, as you said, we've moved from startup to scale up and we're just currently closing out our Series A round already. So a super exciting time to be part of the journey. Fantastic. So you were kind of attracted to the excitement of that sort of rapid growth that's going on and, and they, they wooed you. They definitely wooed me. Yeah. So I think um, it's a great example of meeting people through your network, which I guess I, I've never really done before. Every role I've moved into has been via a headhunter predominantly. And this was more a case. So I was in a sort of a, a forced change period because my role at DFS was made redundant at the end of 2019. We'd been traveling, my husband and I went traveling and uh, got driven back by two things. One, the pandemic. Uh, we were out in, uh, in the Philippines as the pandemic slowly started to push back into Europe. So that was a bit of a tr- tricky time. But also I shattered my elbow very carelessly falling off a moped. So I had to come back for that as well. So, so it was a bit of a weird time. And I was in a number of processes to kind of go and do what I've always done, you know, work in big businesses with big teams, you know, building or, or iterating brands, I guess. And I had this opportunity, which now I can say was an opportunity at the time, was was a forced uh, reflection to work out what I really wanted to do. And I was having some great conversations and some great processes, as I say. And then through my ex-CTO from Costa, I met Deirdre and Ray, who are the founders of our business. It was just like an instant chemistry. I don't know if you've ever found that, where you just meet people and you connect. And they weren't looking for me, and I, I wasn't looking to join a startup, for sure. It had never really entered my mind that that would be a place that I could thrive. You know, initially I was drawn to them by the solution. So they have a real 
solution to a true consumer problem, which I, I obviously know really well from working in DFS, that that's, that's a massive problem for consumers. Mm. But I think the, uh, the reflection I've had over time was what I'm really good at is I'm really good at solving problems and the bigger the problem, the better. So that, that really appealed to me that they were solving something and were first to market. And I like building things. So I like building teams and brands and businesses. Uh, and actually everything I've ever done has been part of iteration. And actually, this was an opportunity to build something from nothing. You know, that's that dream, isn't it? It's like, here's a blank piece of paper. What would you do? And it's like, really? Mm. <laughs> really? <laughs> so I think that was kind of a big consideration for me when they, they then approached me and said, you know, we kind of weren't looking for a CMO at this stage of our growth, but we, we really want you to work with us as we, we take the business from startup to scale up. How does that work? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Never considered it. <laughs> Uh, and it just kind of went from there. And I think, you know, I'm really fortunate because I work with people I like and respect and admire. Um, I feel incredibly valued within the business and I'm doing things that I, I know I'm really good at. So, so I'm kind of energized and I, I genuinely get up every day feeling positive about what's ahead of us. Uh, so kind of energized and consumed by work, but in, in a really positive way, which is, you know, really rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. It's a marriage made in heaven by the sounds of it as well. It's it's so wonderful to work with people that you enjoy working with every day. It makes a massive difference. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So going back a little bit, I'd, I'd be so curious to find out about how you got into marketing in the first place, kind of what, what sparked your journey. Are you able to, to share your story? Yeah, sure. I mean, I didn't start in marketing. Um, so I started out as a retail grad at Sainsbury's. Uh, back in the day when Sainsbury's were the leading UK retailer and uh, were based on Blackfriars Bridge, so that always dates me. Um, but I started out as a retail grad and I was on the shop floor, so going through the graduate programme there, and they sponsored my degree. So my degree is actually in retail marketing. And then through my time with them, I got the opportunity to move into head office. So I worked in London and worked in the space planning team. And it was at the time when category management was becoming a big thing in the UK. And uh, Sainsbury's were working with the partnering group. So I was able to be part of that pilot. I was super junior. Um, so I basically did all the analytics and space planning for what at the time was sort of pasta and rice and cooking sauces. And now is Foods of the World and, and still is Foods of the World. So super proud on our shop in Sainsbury's that it still looks like that. And that gave me a real excitement around the data and the power of data to actually change something in a business and drive a different consumer behavior that results in a positive business result. So, so I guess that was kind of my first insight into it. And I, I probably wouldn't have articulated it that way at the time. But if I look back, I go, that's when I realized the power of data and, you know, good old spreadsheet and a bit of tail analysis. So, so moving on from then, I got the opportunity to go and work for Britvic uh, as a category manager. And I guess poacher turned gamekeeper. So I went from being the retailer to being the supplier and having to pitch back to the retailer, which is a, a humbling position to be in. Um, and I was a, a dedicated category manager for them across their business and across all of the grocery retailers. So again, a, a great experience and all about data and consumer insight. And I had a bit of an inkling then, you know, Brickfix is a, a brilliant business with amazing brands. And I had a bit of a like, all oh, marketing sits on the second floor. It's a bit sexy. That's where all the cool kids work. <laughs> um, and I'm this boring person who lives in a spreadsheet all day. So I kind of had that sort of like, I guess, that, that, that giddy view of what, what marketing really looked like before I 
got to where I am now and understood the commercial the commercial reality of it. But um, but that was a, a really interesting. So I think I'd expressed some interest in it at the time. Um, and then we went through a restructure and I'm a bit of a, I always like to have a backup plan. So I got offered a really great role in Britvic, which in hindsight would have got me into consumer marketing faster. But at that time, I'd um, been approached by Gillette and I decided to join Gillette. So I went to Gillette as a category manager for the Gillette business. And again, a super, super time to join. I was part of the team that uh, were able to launch Mac 3 Turbo and Venus. So I can talk about the number of ergonomic hand grips that are built into Venus's handle <laughs> for us ladies and the way that we shave. So yeah, those things still stick with me. So that again was a, was a brilliant time. And also that was when Unilever launched the Lynx Razor. So that's the first time they went seriously into it. And it was a, a massive threat for Gillette. So again, it was a great opportunity to be working for a, a brand leader, but in a place where it was really being challenged for the first time. So I had a great opportunity there as well. And uh, again, still, you know, the cool kids worked in marketing and I wanted to be one of the cool kids. And then I got an opportunity to apply for a role in Europe, the European team for Gillette. Again, sounds really sexy, was on the second floor. Um, however, it was relocating to Geneva. So, so again, I uh, was, was successful in, in getting the role. It was an interesting role for me because it's a European category management role based on Oral-B and Braun, so different business unit within Gillette. But it was my first time of doing an influencing role, so I didn't have a team. Um, and actually, my team were, were like almost a dotted line, and they sat in all of the European markets. And so my role was really to influence or set a, set a strategy, I guess, but also influence the investment and of time and money in the market against Oral-B and Braun, when actually the king brand in, in the mix is obviously Gillette. So that was an interesting time. And again, you know, worked with the really cool marketing team and wanted to be a cool marketer. And so I talked to my, uh, my VP at the time, a gentleman called Alan Sutherland, who remains one of my mentors today. I want to look at what moving into marketing looks like. And he said, well, you know, we can give you a brand manager job. You can try it out, but you have to do it alongside your category management role. So you can you can do that. So I did that. I loved it. Um, I worked on refills, oral B refills. That was why I did the whole repackaging, stop people stealing. They're really, really like fascinating pieces that happen in retail for Gillette. Uh, and that was what I was doing at the point we were acquired by Procter & Gamble. And Procter & Gamble acquired Gillette as a business for Gillette predominantly. Um, and what actually happened was Oral-B and Braun became almost the jewel in the crown for the European teams. It took the, the European business from 300 million to a $1.2 billion business. Wow. So suddenly they'd acquired this business. I don't think they'd quite realized they'd got. And, and I was, again, super fortunate. So Alan was a massive sponsor of mine. And I managed to, which this sounds amazing, really, when you think it's Procter & Gamble. I went from being a category manager who'd done a few months of brand marketing to actually being associate marketing director for Procter & Gamble. And I did four different roles within Procter & Gamble during my time there. And, and I always say it, it was like basically going to the best brand marketing school in the world because P&G's investment in its people is just phenomenal. So that was a huge, uh, huge experience for me. And, and, and the reason I left was actually to, to go and do something new and shiny, not for any other reason. You know, P&G is definitely a company where you can continue to grow for, for your whole career. Um, and again, you know, Alan was a huge sponsor for me as I did that. So I, that was, uh, I spent 10 years in Geneva doing that role as well, which was a great experience. So I moved, then I moved back to the UK. So a bit of a life-changing moment. My marriage failed, um, which made a bit of a whole, I guess, a whole rethink of what, what next. So I moved back to the UK and I went to work for the ABF group and I worked for Jordans and Rivita. And I looked after Insight, R&D and marketing uh, for Jordans 
and Rivita across my time there. And I did a postgrad in digital. So I recognized that PNG was an amazing brand building school, wasn't as digital at the time as it is now. And this is the way the world was going. So I did a postgrad in digital. And at the time I was working for a lady called Carol Welsh. And then Carol went on to become the CMO of Costa. So six months into her role, she approached me and asked me if I'd join her at Costa as her brand strategy and digital director which was brilliant because what it meant was I could still hold on to all that great brand uh, work that I loved and, and I knew that I had the skills for predominantly built out through Gillette and Procter and & Gamble. But actually, I got to get much more heavily involved in digital and use what I'd learned academically actually to make a difference in a business. So uh, again, a, a great opportunity. What I found in that role was I expected to go in and do, uh, well, first of all, I think you go into a business and you think everyone shares your view of what digital is and you quickly realize they don't. Everyone has a different articulation of digital. And then I, I think the other thing was everyone had a lot of energy and Starbucks is amazing in terms of digital. So everyone would look to Starbucks and their product innovation. And it was like, well, we, why can't we do that? And I think the realization quite quickly was, because what underpins the technology in Costa at the time was huge legacy systems. Mm. So it was that whole now, you know, articulated as a digital transformation program. But at the time, it was just like, let's stop lifting the bonnet because every time we lift it, it's really scary. We can't quite do what we wanted to do. <laughs> um, so I worked really closely with a gentleman called Mark Demody, who was the CTO. And I probably spent more time understanding what it, what it means to actually work in technical transformation so what it means to replatform your loyalty system, your till system. So we ended up having to replatform everything. And I'd say I was I was there for a couple of years and I was the beginning of the journey. And it's it's ongoing as these things always are. So we were probably just starting to kick all of that off around what's the right platforms for everything. Um, so yeah, and actually Mark is the thread how I how I came to meet Dean Ray actually. But um between Costa and youfurnish.com, I got the opportunity to go and work for DFS. And I just uh, I guess I just got to that point where I, I was really clear. I wanted to get to a board position. I wanted to be part of the C-suite. I wanted to be part of bigger problem solving, bigger brand building, bigger business building. And one of the things that uh, was really interesting about DFS, and I remember this to the day, is uh, I knew it was a compromise for me because I was going to have to live away from home. But Ian Philby, who was the CEO at the time, um, is an incredibly inspirational person. And one of the things he said to me was, you know, it's really simple. I, I need you to take the business from well-known to well-loved without dropping a sale. And that was not simple at all. <laughs> um, but it was a brilliant articulation of the problem. And, and as I said, I really like problem solving. So being really clear from the outset. And that actually meant putting digital and brand together. So those teams in DFS at the time sat separately as is the case in a lot of retail businesses. So it's about putting the teams together and putting consumer and insight and data at the very front of the journey, which again, you know, all things that I, I could sort of pull out of my tool bag and basically go, right, I can now put all this stuff that I've learned into one place and, and bring it all together. And, and I had a brilliant couple of years there as the CMO. Um, we won an IPA for, you know, brilliant marketing uh, effectiveness. Um, obviously not not my work, the team's work, and actually in fairness, the, the previous CMO's work as well, because it's a culmination over three to four years of, of the work that's been done. And then I got the opportunity to take on commercial and manufacturing. So I became the chief commercial uh, and marketing officer. 
and which meant I was suddenly wearing two hats. I had this amazing marketing investment line, which we were looking for efficiencies all the time, but we were still one of the biggest spenders in the UK. And I had this huge profit delivery accountability on behalf of the business. So I really had that full P&L accountability. And suddenly you have a different view on cutting your marketing spend when you're missing a point of margin on your profit delivery. So that was a, a great experience as well in putting that together. And then I also looked after five factories which actually had a standalone P&L as well. So, and I, I just completed the Marketing Academy Fellowship Programme for CMOs who want to become CEOs. So it felt like this perfect storm of, of everything was coming together uh, at a perfect time. And then as a result of the board restructure, my role was redundant, as I, I said, at the end of 2019. And I, I went on a journey of uh, what do I do next? Uh, and how do I find something that really energizes me every day? And, and obviously, you've heard me talk a little bit around youfurnish.com already. So that's how I get to be there. And, and as a part of that journey, I guess, um, I've become a bit obsessed and a bit of a geek about resilience. Yeah. So I thought I was really resilient. Uh, and then stuff happened. And I probably wasn't as resilient as I thought I was. And so I've become a bit obsessed by it. And I've just done a postgrad in um, psychology of uh, happiness, positive psychology, which has a huge module on resilience as well. So, yeah, definitely not there, but have got some more things that I know I need to practice. <laughs> and I think as well as resilience being a, a theme, I think what's really interesting is the power of your network as well, because you, you sort of picked up on the fact that uh, Mark was a key person and I think it's something that people can forget that you're so focused on the job that you forget to invest in your wider network and it sounds like that's been really important for you and perhaps a a good priority for you. Yeah definitely and I think when I was absolutely right when I lived away from home in, in the role for DFS I just didn't I was head down in my job all the time and I think what um, I, you know, we all, it's like that thing, isn't it? You know these things, you you know them to be true, but you just never invest the time in them. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge extrovert and I love meeting people, but the whole idea of networking events fills me with horror. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so I guess I never invested enough. And that's actually, for me, been really fascinating about, uh, we work in a remote distributed model. So um, the lockdown hasn't forced that. That's what we are anyway. Uh, and actually, I found it really empowering. So, you know, I, I'm part of some really big networks now who I can go to for great advice or just for a bit of energy. And uh, and it's actually really, really played out well for me. Uh, but yeah, you know, you're right. But DNI, I mean, she's recently been interviewed by The Times, Deirdre, so she's, uh, she's my founder. And she talked about how she found me through the power of the network I mean we would never have found each other in a traditional way yeah and of course you and I met through the uh, the Wits End uh, network as well which is I just think in a most amazing network so yeah I, I totally agree that one's one that I come away from every uh, session we do and I do the whole right there's three or four people I end up following up with and it, it's just brilliant and I think this enables it a bit more being able to talk through technology rather than yeah. say well when are you in London or when am I in London let's get a coffee then people's diaries move and I just think this is just this is just enabling it a bit more for me yeah. for sure although I do recommend meeting on a cheese barge well, I know. I'm quite excited by a cheese barge. I do like a bit of Stilton. <laughs> I was more excited, though. I was a bit like Wendy. I was hoping it was actually a barge made of cheese. <laughs> so if you don't mind, Tony, I'd like to go back even further than Sainsbury's, because I'm really curious about how we are as kids 
shapes where we end up as adults. So what were you like when you were little? Well, actually, probably the same size I am now. <laughs> I'm not much bigger. But when I was little, um, yeah, so I've done a bit of YSC profiling and loads of profiling tools. So I could go on about this forever. But I guess that the key things I'd pull out is I'm a big sister. Uh, I was a tomboy. I had super high energy. And I think yeah, my mum would have said I was like, you just talk, she talks all the time. She's a real chatterbox and she's really nosy. I think now that would get reframed, wouldn't it, and say that she's really curious and she uh, she builds relationships quickly. But I think as a child, that's what my mum would probably have said about me. My dad is military, so, um, and my dad's my hero even now. So, you know, um, I'm heading for half a century at the end of this year and my dad is still up there on a pedestal. And I guess we had that discipline and structure that comes with a military father. So I guess that plays into a little bit of my drive. Uh, he's never quite sure. He, they always say we're not quite sure where you've got it from. Um, but I think if I look back at what they are, and my dad's a big project guy, so he's constantly on to the next thing. Right. So, you know, always learning even now. Really, he was a technology um, leader in the RAF as well. So he's uh, super curious about how everything works. Yeah, and so, uh, but my brother would boss, definitely say I was a bossy big sister. <laughs> I'm also a big sister, and my family would probably say exactly the same thing. <laughs> when you were growing up, did you have a sense of what you wanted to be? God, no. Um, <laughs> I think I wanted to be liked, and I wanted to be popular, I wanted to be cool, and I was probably none of those things. But uh, when I did my work experience for GCSEs, I wanted to be an engineer. Um, and then when I did my work experience and I was doing my A-levels, I thought I wanted to be a physiotherapist. Clearly, those things are totally poles apart. And I've ended up doing something completely different. So I, I guess no is the answer, honestly. What advice would you give to your teenage self if you could? Oh, God, I, could, I think I could probably write. I would say I'd write a book on it, but I should probably be cooler and say I'd write a blog on it. But um, <laughs> I think if I had to drill it down, I'd probably say the things. And I'm still learning this, so I'd probably still give it to myself now is listen to your intuition. So trust yourself, it will serve you well. Um, and I think you have to go through the highs and lows of life to really learn that. So I'm, I'm not sure it's something you can be told. The biggest one I'm still on a journey for is uh, your job does not define you and happiness is not a job title. <laughs> so uh, that's what I'm still, you know, I think I've come from a, 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 not, a not a background, this wasn't my childhood, but definitely from a world of work where it's about, go higher, go faster, get a bigger job, a bigger title, you know, all the, the bells and whistles that come with that. And that's, you know, obviously been transformational for me in the last year of like working through what really matters to me. I think there's a bit around the highs and lows. So there's going to be highs and lows and you're going to be okay. So there's going to be some really crappy stuff that happens, but you will be all right. Um, you're more resilient than you know, even though, you know, I like to think I wish I'd been better. And then I think the bit for me, and this is part of doing the course I did in positive psychology, is your friends and family are the real measure of your success and your happiness, not what you right. do for a living. And I think I, I really struggle with that. I'm definitely someone that is externally validated right. and trying to unpick those things. And, and through, the, through the pandemic and then obviously not working for a while, I actually volunteered and I, I still do that now at a care home that specializes in MS and spinal injury. And there is nothing more humbling than sitting with someone who's had a spinal injury, telling them about the interview processes you're going through and the people you're meeting and hearing them play it back to you. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that's definitely kept me grounded and motivated through the last year as well. But, yeah, I think it's getting really clear that how do you make sure you invest the time 
in the stuff that really matters. And that's, that's really tricky. That's great advice. We've touched on your, your network a couple of times and you've mentioned people like Alan, Carol, Mark, Ian, who sound like incredible people. Are there any other genuine humans who've influenced you in your career? I mean, I think there's, there's, there's loads of people, isn't there? From every, from every role I've done, there's probably people that are still in my life now, um, you know, either who worked for me in my team or I worked for. Um, who've who've maintained that thread with me and then I think there's the people I mean all those people I've talked about you know there's another gentleman Keith Carnes a guy called Jeremy Thomas as I've moved through my career they're the people that have given me the confidence to take the leap when I lacked it myself so I remember Keith saying to me when I got the the opportunity to go and be in the uh, European team in Geneva with Gillette and I had this moment of panic where I was like I'm going to move my husband who's got this amazing job at Sainsbury's in the bank I'm going to move him to Geneva and and you know, what, what happens if I hate the job and what happens if I'm not any good at it and what happens if I hate Geneva? And he was like, whoa, 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 what's the worst that can happen? You hate it, you leave, you will be fine. Yeah. And I guess that's some of the things I'm saying. I wish I could have told my younger self, but at the time I was in this whole life, that that's too much, there's just too much change. So again, you know, they, they've all been um, people that I think I've respected and been inspired by. They've um, continued to remain in my life now as mentors or coaches or even friends. Um, and they've given me those moments of humility. So Ian, who's the, the amazing CEO I worked for at DFS, I remember him once saying to me when I was talking about wanting to become a CEO and saying, oh, this is the stuff that, that fills me with fear. And he said, do you think that doesn't fill me with fear? Yeah. He said, I still have that moment where I go, how am I a CEO? And, and for me, that was the bit where it's like, that's when the veneer comes off, the corporate veneer comes off and the real person's there. And, and they're the people that for me have just been amazing. And, and again, I'm, connect, I'm still connected to all of them. So when I made the choice about joining a, a startup, I reached out to nearly all of them. And those moments can be, and for me, it was life changing. I think the first time I heard someone who I thought was amazing say, how did I get here? You know, I'm just muddling through like everyone else. Yeah. And you sort of think, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's always good to hear that from other people without naming names, or you can if you want to. Would you say that you've had a worse job? I'm not sure I've had a worse job, but I've had a couple of experiences that have stayed with me. So one, one I guess, hopefully to make you smile, is when I was doing my A-levels, I worked in the local fruit and veg shop at the weekend. And uh, there's two things I had to do there that now still fill me with horror, is the moment when you put your hand into a bag of potatoes and the potato is rotten. Ew. And the smell that manages to stay with you no matter how many times you wash your hands. So that's a, that's an experience that's still there for me from when I was 17. And then also changing flower water. You know, when you get that slimy bit of a leaf yep. and the water. So I'm a bit obsessive. So I am a subscriber to one of the direct-to-consumer flower brands. And um, that's one of my obsessions is the minute the water starts to change. So I guess they were a couple of things now that have stayed with me from like experiences in jobs. And then I guess the one that's probably... Uh, most marked in my mind is when I was working for Sainsbury's as a grad I um, had a role where I was it's called you were the backdoor manager or the reception manager both terrible titles <laughs> but you basically unloaded lorries all day and I was you know five foot nothing blonde with steel toe cap boots on not looking particularly hot in a Sainsbury's uniform <laughs> in the day and uh, I had to, it would go two ways you'd either get a lorry driver who would rock up and lean on his truck and watch you struggle to unload his like you know 52 pallet container or you'd get them where they would help you out because, you know, it was a bit like watching their daughter. And then I remember I was incredibly unwell, and you don't mean in sick in retail, it's just right. it's not the way. 
And in those days, the store managers were gods and you weren't allowed to tell your department manager you were sick. You had to tell the store manager. So they just put you through call after call after call. So all the time the calls are building as you wait for him to answer the phone and you're like fearful of telling him that you're not coming in that day. And I remember him saying to me, he was definitely a guy that led by fear. And he said to me, ha, ah, typical. This is what happens when you give a man's job to a little girl. <gasps> and uh, what was I, I was 21. And that stuck with me. So I can still articulate. I can still remember exactly how I felt when he said it to me. So, yeah, I guess so. So not worse jobs, because I think highs and lows in all jobs, but a um, couple of experiences <laughs> for sure that have stayed with me. And I think those kind of those moments where you remember sort of bad leadership, they can also help you make uh, be a better leader because you just think I never yes. want anyone to feel the way that I felt when that person said that. So absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to shift us back to the brands, actually, because obviously we were talking about Sainsbury's, but you've also worked with Britfit, Gillette, Costa. What what have you been most proud of so far? I, I think well, there's things I think, you know, there's awards, isn't there, and business performance and, you know, seeing the shifts in the brand and all those great things that, that we all strive for. But I think the bit I'm probably most proud of is the teams. So the teams I've been part of or the teams I've been able to be part of building. And, and I, I remember this example, and this makes me quite emotional, so I'll try and say it without wobbling. But I was at a Festival of Marketing conference when I first came back to the UK and I bumped into somebody. You know when you see someone and you know you know each other, but you can't place each other? And in the end, she came up to me um, and she said, Tony, I was like, yeah, yeah. She's like, we worked at Procter and Gamble together, and she said, um, she said to her colleague, "This is Tony," and this the, the, the lady she was with said, "What Tony that you talk about Aww. all the time that everyone knows about?" And she's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And I hadn't worked with her for eight years, and um, she was in my team, Catherine, her name was, and she said, um, "She goes, yeah, yeah, yeah." She goes, "I talk about you all the time. I constantly quote you. I always talk about what would I do if Tony was here? What would Tony advise me to do?" And I, I don't think I ever really thought about the impact I had on people beyond when we were in role and that you actually have a lead, you know, even though people have had that lasting legacy with me, I forget that you give forward. So I think they're probably the things I'm proudest mm-hmm. of. And, and, you know, I had a bit of a moment. I was with one of my colleagues at the time and I had a bit of a wobble and he was laughing at me. Like, he was like, you don't get it, do you? You don't get the impact you have. And I was like, no, That's so I'm so emotional about this. I want to just hug everybody. <laughs> oh, she's got a little Tony on her shoulder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually i just watched her she's just what she's just um on linkedin this week she's just got a massive promotion i'm so proud of her she's just like a superstar that's fantastic you've talked about resilience i'd kind of like to sort of dig in a little bit because it's an area that i'm fascinated in as well about you know whether you believe that you have that resilience built in obviously everyone gets a challenge you sort of mentioned that you've had your resilience sort of checked at, at various points is it something that is like a muscle that you can improve? Um, I'd I just love to know what your thoughts are on resilience. Yeah, I, I think it's really tricky. So I choose to believe you can improve it. And that's why I think I'm attracted to things like the psychology of, of happiness is I choose to believe we can have, we can be happy and we can make choices and we can retrain our brain. I, I like to believe that's true. So I think you can definitely build it it's like a muscle but I think until it's put under pressure until you're put under extreme pressure and there's, there's two points in my life um to be totally honest one is my divorce and one is my redundancy so even though it was the right decision for the business it and then it wasn't personal it was my friends that made me redundant kind of thing in that journey so it was a I said extreme change for me in terms of how I thought about my own resilience and the speed at which I could bounce back 
And, you know, my friends and my support crew, who really are your friends and family, when those things, those things happen, they were all like, yeah, but it, it wasn't, it was the speed at which you came back. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't feel it in that moment. Um, and I think there's, there's a load of stuff I've learned. And I think it's a, it's a life practice, right, I think, to build your resilience. And I feel really trite saying I got divorced and I got made redundant because so many worse things happen, you know, and recently my dad has had some incredibly ill health and that's probably more important to me than both of those things. And I know there'll be another test of my resilience. Um, so I'd like to think that I'm, I'm building the muscle, but I definitely think it's something that there's no such thing as being bulletproof. No. I don't believe anyone's bulletproof. And I think anyone that professes they are is, uh, is kidding themselves, if I'm honest. And I think um, being able to share these things can be really important because, uh, you know, I, like you, I, I went through a divorce as well. And it was only the fact that other people who'd been through it were sort of sharing things like you're going to have a really crappy year, possibly two years, and yeah. then it will be better. And, and you know, when you're going through something and you just feel like at your lowest ebb, and you kind of think, well, I'm not being very resilient at the moment, just to have other people kind of almost give you that North Star of like, things will get better yeah. can can help. But I, I think it's, 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 it is important to talk about these things as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, and I've been with my, um, so I've been married three years now, and I've been with my, my husband, um, nine years, and, you know, I'm in a new role as a result of being made redundant from DFS, and none of those things would have happened. Um, and what I think is that, you know, there's a load of cliches, around when things happen in your life and I'm like that's such a cliche and actually they're annoyingly true right which I guess is the whole point of a cliche and I'm always uh, I remember somebody really helping me through through one of my conversations around um divorce and um I said I can never pay you back and she said to me you don't pay me back you give it forward yeah and, and I do so that's the thing for me now is like I'm like and even when people tell me it's happening to them I feel it in my tummy the same way and I go I, I know exactly how you feel um and these are the things I can promise will be true <laughs> so exactly as you're, as you're saying tomorrow but um, I I guess in the last year I've done a lot of studying a lot of reading I've listened to podcasts audiobooks I've gone completely I'm completely geeked out on the science of happiness and resilience and I think there's one quote that really stayed true with me that, that I, I think is is really valuable and I literally got on a post-it on my monitor and it's basically those that matter don't care and those that care don't matter and that for me was a real unlocker for me around keeping that front of mind because I'm really validated by others mm. and you know and I'm gonna instead of trying to change that I'm just gonna own it and go I know that but actually being clear on who those people are that validate you is actually more important than trying to fight that off was kind of my big learning. That's quite a nice segue into leadership styles as well, because I, I was going to ask you about your, your style of leadership, and I'm interested to know whether whether it's changed as a result of what you've been through as well. So, what, yeah, what, what kind of leader are you? <laughs> I am a extremely positive, I guess, collaborative leader. So I think out loud, and I love problem solving. And I think because I'm quite high energy and naturally very positive, so this is kind of me all the time, to the annoyance sometimes of my husband, I find it quite easy to inspire people and engage them in the majority. My, my watch out is people who don't share my um, positivity and pace, uh, I can easily leave behind and, and not go back and pick them up and, and when I was younger in my career that was very much around I would go well they're not with me they think I'm a bit daft or a bit crazy or my ideas aren't very smart and they don't want to be with me 
Uh, and I don't want to, I'm not going to lean into that I'm, or, or to use that language. I'm not actually going to face into that. Uh, I'm just going to keep going with all these other people that are happy and, and, and on the same bus as me. And actually my realisation is that's not actually what they were thinking. I had a great bit of coaching and uh, I found out that's not actually what people think. And actually there's more value in leaning into those conversations because they're the people that actually will check your thinking for you and just give you that pressure test. So I think there's a, there's a big learning in there for me that I always try and hold on to. It's the people who are different to me in the room are the people who are the most valuable. But, um, yeah, that's the sort of leader that I am. And, and how it's changed, I guess, in a world where it's remote, I was a bit unsure about. It's like I'm hugely collaborative. I used to thinking out loud I'm a bit post-it-y, so I love a post-it and a Sharpie. Uh, and I was a bit anxious about how on earth am I going to do that when I'm sitting in my study in Leamington Spa and my team are all over you know, the country. And uh, actually, I found it really empowering. So we use a lot of technology so to collaborate, some gr- brilliant tools like a Moiro board and, and those sorts of things. So you can recreate that. But actually, what I found is I'm much more productive. So I actually get through a ton more work myself as well by not having that constant distraction. So I think that whole bit around things that I would have said were my strengths before and lent themselves massively to being in offices with teams of people actually have, have flexed a bit um, but actually play as well in a remote world. So what's what's the big priority for this coming year with uh, with youfurnish.com? Wow. So, so we have a lot uh, going on. So we are, uh, as you said at the beginning of the, of the session, we're a startup in rapid scale-up. So we're just about closing out our big Series A raise, which is really exciting. And that's about accelerating us even faster. So it's all about pace uh, and learning really quickly. We're bringing new retailers onto the website all the time. So we have been in a really fortunate position since we launched, which we haven't had to outreach to any of them. They've all come to us on the back of our sort of success, which has been brilliant. We've got a ton of new product features. So what you see today and what you'll see in six months' time are are completely different. So we've got a great, uh, great set of new product features that are coming as part of our development roadmap for the website. And then we've obviously got the uh, the need to build the team. So we've gone from five people when I joined to a team of 18 now. So I think we are six nationalities and six countries or seven countries, I think. So we've got multiple countries and nationalities now within the business, which is brilliant. And that's a, a power of a remote model because we can go where the talent is um, as opposed to having to have people commute into offices, which has been really empowering. So about increasing our team. So we've got new team members going into the development team and into our product team so yeah so very very exciting time it's all about growth busy times indeed love it so we're going to move on to the part of the podcast now where we get a little bit more personal so let's start with what's your guilty pleasure oh i have two i have two they're both orange so one is my dog so i have a vizsla he's a year old pre-lockdown but um has grown up with me uh, to this age in lockdown and and a both my husband and I are obsessed. So God knows what we if we had kids because the dog has become like the centre of our world. So I have a a, a gorgeous ginger bizzler and then I've discovered giant whatsits. So if you haven't discovered giant whatsits, get yourself to a supermarket how giant, how giant are they? They are just phenomenal. And every time I introduce them to someone, they go, that's disgusting. How can you eat a giant whatsit? And then they become obsessed as well. So it's a, it's a definite obsession. Did they have any of those on the cheese barge, Tamara? <laughs> well, <laughs> they didn't, but all I can visualise is like the whatsit the size of a head now. I, just, I, I need to see how, how giant they are. They are, they are pretty giant and they're pretty amazing because they're covered. They're really saturated in that cheesy what's that, you know, is uh, 
is, is not great for you, but tastes phenomenal. Orange fingers. <laughs> uh, have you seen the giant crumpets? Yes, I love the crumpets. I've seen them tomorrow. They're massive. <laughs> Absolutely. They only just fit in the toaster. I'm all, I'm all over that. So other than I, I can imagine that your dog and giant what's-its might be involved, but what, what else would make a perfect weekend for you? Oh, well, well, my husband has got me into um, camping. So we have, a, we have a camper van, Volkswagen camper van, which he kitted out. Um, and it's pretty cool. So we, we take that, we get to the beach, we've got stuck boards. So we do stand up paddle boarding, um, anything where I'm by the sea, and I'm kind of happy. So, uh, so that with my dog, followed by, I guess, boozy lunch with champagne and friends. Perfect. That's brilliant. Different type of question. But what's one of the most adventurous things that you've ever done? Oh, that's a great question. I've, I've done a ton of stuff since I met Duncan, my husband, because he's a proper put a rucksack on, go travel. So I guess one of the, the most exciting things I did when I first met him was he, we did, we've done a couple of big, big trips back to South America. We did the Inca Trail, oh, wow. um, which was phenomenal. Uh, and I think that the sort of, at the end, it's just amazing when you arrive. But I think for me, the journey of four days you know, and, and alt- I mean, I was really unwell with altitude sickness. So that whole bit where you feel like your head's in a vice. But, you know, it's definitely it's a definitely a way to decide whether you're uh, you're going to stick with each other for life, I think, is, uh, is doing the Inca Trail and, and getting altitude sickness. But that's probably one of the big adventures, I think, that, that I've done and that we've done together. It's pretty damn adventurous. Yeah. <laughs> and if you could have an extra hour every day, what would you do with it? Oh, I'd spend it with my best friend. So I've been friends with my... Uh, my bestie Claire since I was in my 20s, early 20s, so I met her when I joined Sainsbury's. Because uh, I was in the military with my dad, I moved around all the time, so I don't have that sort of friends, friendships from when I was like five years old. So, so Claire's kind of the, the longest running friend I, I have in my life. And we live a couple of hours apart from each other, so we don't see each other nearly as much as, as we would like to. Um, so yeah, I definitely spend it with her. That must have been tough during lockdown. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we've both had quite a lot going on with our parents' health. Um, and that's that's quite a tough time as well when you can't be there for each other. And it has to be a sort of thought through planned trip as opposed to just popping in for a cup of tea or a glass of wine yeah. and cheering each other up. So, yeah, it's definitely, uh, definitely what I would spend my time doing. On the theme of your friends, how would they describe you and how would you like them to describe you? Yeah, so I asked them this, obviously, and then I asked them this while I was on WhatsApp when I was walking Cooper in a field, uh, my dog, and then uh, found myself crying in the same field with, like, emotional love. So, yeah, so it was lovely. So they obviously said lovely things, as your friends do, but they said I was fierce, uh, loyal, that I light up the room and that I'm great fun. Uh, And I'm pretty happy with that, if I'm honest. So I think as... uh, as friendships go and again I'm really fortunate they are they were my bridesmaids when I got married to Dunks and um there were seven of them wow. they're basically a netball team and uh they all lined up and, and I could see my whole life there really from when I was 20 through to today and they've all played a massive role in my life and, and what's lovely is that they're they're not friends independently but when they all come together it's really easy for us all to hang out together so it's it's really sort of really great I guess to see it all lined up in your wedding pictures <laughs> oh, you've got your squad <laughs> got <my> squad yeah <laughs> what's still on your bucket list then I mean it sounds like uh, you're with a very adventurous partner so uh, have you got a, a sort of bucket list that you're trying to cross off 
everyone laughs that I've done this, right? So I'm, I'm coming up to my half century, as I like to call it, at the end of this year. And I've positioned it as a planned midlife crisis. Right. So I am planning my midlife crisis. Brilliant. Um, but in a way that's positive. So I have um, a little book and, and everyone gets to like submit. Everyone has a page and they submit all their ideas. So which I, it sounds completely crazy. And some of the stuff is like, yeah, I'm really lucky and I've, I've done that already. Um, some of it's countries I still want to get to. So I want to get to Vietnam. That's the debate because my husband's done it. So he's like, no, I've done that one. And I'm like, your life happened. <laughs> and same with Australia. So he's lived in Australia and Australia is one of the big places I haven't right. done, but I, I've been to many other countries. And then we both want to get to Japan. So that's probably the one we, we would get to. I think I want to do the typical midlife crisis is I really want a tattoo. <laughs> and I might just have to do that, you know, under the cover of darkness. So yeah, so it's a bit of travel. And, and I guess, yeah, no, I, I think they're kind of the big things, but it's just kind of doing the same stuff we do now. So more traveling and, uh, you know, more more time with friends and family, I think. Fantastic. Well, here's to uh, restrictions being lifted so that we can all start uh, getting out and about again. Absolutely. So, Tony, we're coming to the end now. So I'm going to give you the, the last bit to, to sort of... Let me and Wendy know, is there anything that we haven't covered, anything that we, you wish we'd asked or or just any closing thoughts, really? No, I mean, I've really enjoyed it. it and I think when you, you get asked to think about some of these things, um, it's a really great opportunity because for me, it's like I'm not a reflector, as you probably get. <laughs> I'm all about going forward at pace. So actually being forced to think about some of these things is, is really powerful. Um, so I think just thank you for me for the opportunity to be part of what you guys are doing I think it's fabulous so uh, yeah thank you very much you've been listening to genuine humans brought to you by the social element if you loved what you heard remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency